Welcome to Scam This. If you got a bunch of texts from your friends saying that they got a positive COVID test, you're not the only one. Omicron is here, and it might be behind the rise in cases all over the country. It has mutations that make it transmit and evade some immune protection. The good news is that it looks like vaccines, particularly a boosting of a vaccine, can do some good protection. But before we get to our Q&A with Dr. Anthony Fauci on best practices this holiday season, we've got some other news to get through, including Congress narrowly avoiding total financial meltdown, the Fed taking action to curb inflation, and a major victory for sexual abuse survivors. And we'll wrap up the show by breaking down the beef between Peloton and the Sex in the City reboot. I think I would have thought exactly everything that the Peloton marketing team thought. <laughs> of just like, wow, this is great. Wow, what the f***? We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. All right, let's start with some headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up. Days after tornadoes slice through multiple states, there are still more than 100 people unaccounted for in Kentucky alone. Here's what's happened over the past six days. Over the weekend, dozens of tornadoes tore through six states, Arkansas, Illinois, Kentucky, Mississippi, Missouri, and Tennessee. Kentucky was hit the hardest. As of Tuesday, 74 people had been confirmed dead in the state, and more than 100 were still unaccounted for. Thousands of people are still without shelter, power, or water. Eight of those who died were killed while they were working the night shift at a candle factory, and workers were allegedly threatened with termination if they left because of the tornado warning. Kentucky's governor said these tornadoes were probably one of the most devastating tornado events in U.S. history, while President Biden, who went to Kentucky on Wednesday, pledged to cover all of Kentucky's storm-related costs over the next 30 days. Then, after a weekend of devastation, yesterday, powerful storms rolled through and knocked out power for hundreds of thousands of people all over the Midwest. Experts are on high alert and say this is unprecedented. Tornadoes tend to hit in the spring, and the storms are much more powerful than what we're used to seeing in this region. If you want to help storm victims in Kentucky and the Midwest, we'll leave a link in our show notes. Next up. The Senate just voted to raise the national debt limit as the clock ticks down on the United States' ability to pay its bills. After months of debate on the Hill, the bill passed exactly along party lines, 50 to 49. Here's what happened. After Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen begged lawmakers to act, Congress finally voted to increase the debt ceiling this week. Reminder, the debt ceiling is the maximum amount the U.S. can borrow to pay off its debt. And if it hits that limit, like it was going to around this time if Congress didn't act, then the U.S. could be in for a recession and wouldn't be able to make crucial payments, like Social Security checks for seniors or pay for government and military employees. So economic catastrophe avoided, at least for now. This new limit means the government won't be in danger of defaulting on those debts until 2023. So the next fight over the debt ceiling won't be going down during midterms next November. Our next headline is a quick PSA. Education Secretary Miguel Cardona says federal student loan borrowers can expect to restart their payments in February. Here's what you need to know. 
federal student loan repayments were put on pause back in March 2020, at the start of the pandemic. But that pause is now officially ending on January 31st. So if you're one of the 43 million Americans this applies to, you might want to mark your calendar because payments resume on February 1st. And our final headline this week is some good news. The U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee and USA Gymnastics have agreed to pay $380 million to hundreds of athletes, all of them abused by Larry Nasser. He was the longtime team doctor for USA Gymnastics. Here's the context. In 2018, Larry Nasser, the team doctor for USA Gymnastics, was sentenced up to 175 years in prison after gymnasts accused him of sexual abuse. In total, more than 300 survivors have come forward. But Nasser didn't carry out his abuse in a vacuum. Survivors also wanted to see USA Gymnastics and the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee held accountable, arguing those organizations allowed Nasser to stay in his role all those years. And this week, the survivors won. In addition to a $380 million settlement, which is one of the largest settlements ever for a sexual abuse case, they also got USA Gymnastics and the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee to commit to policies to prevent further abuse, including requiring at least one survivor to serve on the board of USA Gymnastics moving forward. Survivors say money will never make up for what they suffered. But there's hope that these new policies will set a standard for the sports world moving forward to better protect athletes. Every year ahead of the holiday recess, Congress passes the National Defense Authorization Act, which basically helps fund the military. This week, Congress passed that bill for 2022, which includes the usual stuff, like which engines U.S. planes should use and how much service members get paid. But it also had a provision that revamped part of the military justice system, and in particular, how that system works for victims of sexual assault. To get some help understanding what that justice system looked like before and what it'll look like now, we called up Kelly Kennedy and I'm the managing editor at The War Horse. She told us up until now, if you wanted your assault to be investigated, you would first need to make a report and that report would go to someone above you in your commanding rank. You go to your boss and you say, I've been assaulted and the commander decides, prosecutes, investigates whether you've been assaulted or not. And the problem with that is that the alleged perpetrator is also often a coworker. So your boss is making a decision about two people who work together for him or her. To make an analogy here, that'd be like if one of your coworkers got sexually assaulted by a colleague and instead of going through the regular legal system, someone above them at work was in charge of the investigation. So it'd be like working for a law firm and saying, hey, the guy down the hallway assaulted me. Boss, can you take care of this? If you're a company commander and you're getting ready to deploy or you've got a big field problem coming up and your best gunner is accused by someone in your company of assault, that might color your investigation and that system, where a commander decides whether and how an accusation is handled and where there's no real transparency, has had a chilling effect on whether people choose to come forward in the first place. 
Kennedy doesn't have to take anybody's word on that. She's lived it. I served in the military. I served in the army. I remember reporting a concern. I was worried about a guy who kept showing up at my house and saying, is your husband home? And he was known in the unit for being sort of that guy. And when I reported it to my chain of command, I found out years later, talking to a former first sergeant, that they investigated me for being a problem soldier. And and nothing ever came of it except for that they told him that I had filed this informal complaint, which was really just a, hey, I'm worried about this guy. I don't want to file a formal complaint. Just, you know, keep me safe. Instead, they left me in a barracks by myself and told him and he showed up and, and yelled at me like this. This is why would you report something again? According to a Department of Defense report in 2018, more than 20,000 service members experienced sexual assault, but fewer than 8,000 reported it. And reports show that even when people do come forward, the military often fails to properly investigate, and service members often face retaliation. In 2020, CBS News conducted an investigation and found a, quote, consequential failure to address the needs of service members who are assaulted or harassed, and found that the military had grossly mishandled a lot of sexual assault cases. Internally, a DOD report found that between 2011 and 2019, the number of investigations of sexual assault more than doubled in the armed services, but the military hadn't increased the resources or manpower to hold proper investigations. As a result, according to many, sexual assault has become a systemic issue in the military, and it's an issue Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin and a bipartisan group of lawmakers has pledged to tackle. So this year, the National Defense Authorization Act is changing the rules. Under this new bill, commanders are no longer the ones responsible for deciding whether those accused of sexual assault would be prosecuted. That job is being given to an independent special trial counsel. But it's important to note commanders are still involved in how a trial is conducted. They're in charge of the court-martial. They're in charge of the witnesses. They're in charge of the timeline. They're in charge of which experts are allowed to speak. Think of it this way. It's basically like if you reported something to HR, which launched an investigation. But then your boss gets to decide the way that investigation goes down, from who HR gets to talk to to what emails they can review. And while some are saying these new rules for the military are a step in the right direction, others believe they don't go far enough. Republican Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa and Democratic Senator Kirsten Gillibrand of New York were part of a bipartisan group of senators who pushed for a new bill that would give commanders even less power in sexual assault cases. Kennedy agrees that the current changes in the NDAA aren't enough. I don't feel like this does enough to make cultural change. You know, you've got sexual assault classes that are still treated like an afterthought or some mandatory training that no one wants to do. We have to do it every year and it's a joke. That's what they take out of it as opposed to, you know, these are our coworkers and we need to treat them with respect. I hope that this makes some change, some progress. I hope that by having this prosecutor, the commander might be more open to facts coming from outside, but they're not lawyers. It's hard to make those huge overriding changes when that's just not their job. 
I think this is going to affect recruiting. There's been so many scandals recently. We're worried about ends of wars, a, a lost war. We want to improve the military. If you want to bring in good candidates, you've got to let these candidates know they're going to be treated right. It's almost that time of year again for award season. And this week, we got a look at the 2022 Golden Globe nominees. And while Snoop Dogg, who presented the nominations, got some laughs. Being a fleck. Being Affleck, my fault. (laughs) Sorry about that, Ben. A lot of other people weren't laughing. That's because the Globes has become one of the most controversial award shows in recent years, meaning this year's nominations have basically been met with a collective shrug. We'll explain why the show's in so much hot water in 60 seconds. The Hollywood Foreign Press Association, or the HFPA, runs the Golden Globes, They pick the nominees, and they run and finance the show. The Golden Globes have traditionally been seen as the golden ticket for a lot of people in entertainment, with wins paving the way for Academy Awards and huge paychecks. But the Globes kind of have a dark history, and its past finally seems to be catching up with it. In February, the LA Times dropped an investigation into the Golden Globes, which revealed that none of the HFPA's 87 members were black. According to that report, HFPA members had also accepted money, gifts, and vacations from movie studios in exchange for their votes. And that's not the only sketchy behavior. The HFPA, which runs the Globes as a tax-exempt event, reportedly funnels millions of dollars to its members in fees. The backlash to this investigation was huge. Actors and directors like Scarlett Johansson and Ava DuVernay called out the show, and Tom Cruise even returned his three statuettes. And after all of that blew over, there was yet another scandal. The HFPA's former president allegedly called Black Lives Matter a racist hate movement in an email to members. So in order to stage its Hollywood comeback, it's probably no surprise that the Globes has been trying to reform its image, adding six black journalists to its membership, updating its members' code of conduct, and partnering with the NAACP. But, plot twist, that might not be enough to save the award show, considering The Globes is in so much trouble that NBC won't even broadcast it this year. So, if you still want to watch it, your options are YouTube or the Golden Globes website. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. The Omicron variant, which the World Health Organization labeled as a variant of concern a few weeks ago, has made its way to more than half of the states in the U.S. Scientists have been concerned about this new variant's transmissibility, and they're racing to learn more about how well vaccines protect us. And while we won't have a full picture for a while, two new studies this week did provide some limited answers. First, a study out of South Africa found that while Omicron was more transmissible and was able to evade the Pfizer vaccine, the variant seems to cause less severe COVID. And for those who got both Pfizer shots, the risk of hospitalization was reduced by 70%. Another study from Israel found that booster shots provided strong protection against Omicron, but a regular two-shot regimen alone wasn't likely to protect against getting infected. 
These studies are early, and they're limited. And they both were conducted in countries that have different vaccination rates and available vaccines than the U.S. But while we wait for more data to become available about Omicron, experts are expecting an Omicron surge in the U.S., so prepare to see caseloads rise, including breakthrough cases in fully vaxxed people. To hear more about the Omicron variant and what is or isn't safe to do this holiday season, we spoke to Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Can you tell me the top three things our audience needs to know about Omicron? The top three things that we need to know about Omicron is that it is a brand new concerning variant that has emerged in Southern Africa. Number two, it is highly transmissible, so we have to keep an eye out for it. And number three, fortunately, it looks like vaccines, particularly following a booster of a third shot for an mRNA, is able to protect pretty well against Omicron. So sobering news is that it's new. It has mutations that make it transmit and evade some immune protection. The good news is that it looks like vaccines, particularly a boosting of a vaccine, can do some good protection. Does fully vaccinated mean boosted too? And if not, when will that definition change? Well, the definition of fully vaccinated still is two doses of an mRNA and one dose of a J&J. But what's very clear is that optimally vaccinated means a boost of a third dose of an mRNA and a second dose of J&J, or you can mix and match. It doesn't really matter. When that definition for official purposes changes, I can't tell you, but I believe that within a period of time, it will change. A lot of people in our audience are about to go back into their offices. And do you think that offices should require, in addition to requiring people get fully vaccinated, do you think they should require booster shots as well? I certainly would strongly recommend that if you are vaccinated and you are now eligible to be boosted, that you should go ahead and get a boost. So it would be more of a strong recommendation rather than a requirement. I think a lot of people just want to know if this is our new normal, getting boosters every six months, wearing masks on planes. What would you say to someone who's just thinking about what the next couple of years is going to look like? You know, it's too early to tell, Alex. I really don't know what's going to happen in the next six months to a year, whether we will require yet again another boost or whether the boost will last considerably longer than the original vaccination regimen. With regard to mask wearing, I think people on their own will elect when they are in certain places where they don't know the status of the people around them might want to wear masks. You know, in Asia, it is very common during the winter months when there's a lot of respiratory illness for the entire population to be walking around with masks. I'm curious, what's a situation where you would expect or recommend a full-on March 2020-style lockdown? I don't really see that in the future because we have vaccines now that make a huge difference in whether or not you need to lock down. So, I mean, I can't say 100%, but I would be very, very surprised if we had to lock down again. 
in these next few questions, we're really trying to help our audience make sense of what is or isn't risky behavior for the holiday season. And we want to hear from you about what you would or wouldn't do. So for each of these situations, let's assume the person we're talking about is fully vaxxed. And we basically want you to tell us what would you do? Dr. Fauci, would you fly home for the holidays? I am home for the holidays, so I won't need to fly. But if I did have to fly, being vaccinated and boosted, I would feel safe in flying. If you're vaccinated, but you have a kid at home who isn't, would you take them to a holiday party? If I had a child young enough not to be vaccinated, if my child was five to 11, I would vaccinate my child. If my child is younger than five and there was people there who were not vaccinated, I would be reluctant to bring my child to that party. And if it was compelled that I had to, I would make sure my child wore a mask in an indoor setting. Would you be more careful in general if you had an unvaccinated child, let's say under the age of five? Yes, I would be more careful if I had a child under five, but in my own home, I would not believe it is necessary and do not believe it's necessary since I and my wife are both vaccinated and boosted that we would have to do things like wear a mask in the house. I would feel perfectly safe for my child. However, outside in settings, indoor, if my child was not vaccinated, I would want to make sure my child was wearing a mask. Would you have your unvaccinated kids hang out with their grandparents? Well, it depends. If the grandparents were vaccinated and boosted, I would feel that it would be okay for grandchildren who were particularly like too young to get vaccinated, that they certainly could hang out with their grandparents so long as the grandparents were vaccinated and boosted. Would you have dinner indoors with someone who didn't have a booster? Well, I think that's a tough question. I certainly would not have dinner indoors with people who are not vaccinated. Whether or not they need to be boosted, I think that's a bonus. I would prefer that they be boosted, but I wouldn't exclude them if they were not boosted. Would you hang out with someone who's unvaccinated but recovered from COVID recently? I believe that a person who's recently recovered likely has enough protection as to not get reinfected immediately and then infect me or put me at risk. But remember, I'm vaccinated and boosted, so I have the other end of the spectrum of protection. Would you hang out with someone who's fully vaccinated but was exposed to COVID recently? We're getting pretty detailed. <laughs> I mean, how many more of these do we have, Alex? Give me a Just break. two more. Just two more. So say that again. Would you hang out with someone who's fully vaccinated but who was exposed to COVID recently? Yes, I, I believe that. I mean, there's no, no such a thing as a zero risk. But if I'm vaccinated and boosted and someone is vaccinated and is exposed, I would be very comfortable with hanging out with that person. Sure. If you're invited to a wedding, what protocols would you want there to be in order for you to feel safe going? Well, I have a very strict protocol. If I was going to go to a wedding, I would want to make sure that the wedding had a rule that if you are not vaccinated, you don't come to the wedding. That's it. If they're going to be unvaccinated people there, I would not go. And last question for you. Would you buy a plane ticket or plan a vacation for March 2022? Uh, well, if I were in a situation where I actually could take a vacation, which I'm not, uh, I would believe that that would be safe because A, I'm vaccinated, B, I'm boosted, 
and it's pretty safe traveling on a plane. And I would maintain all of my precautions when I got to the location where I was supposedly vacationing. Dr. Fauci, thanks so much for playing along. Thanks, Alex. Hey, skimmers, before we get back to the show, we want to tell you about another podcast, Bad Women. Bad Women looks at a cold case that's like no other. In 1888, five women were brutally murdered in a London slum. Attacks so violent, the killer earned himself a nickname, Jack the Ripper. But everything you think you know about Jack and those women is wrong. On Bad Women, historian Hallie Rubenhold uncovers the real lives of Jack's victims, revealing the discrimination that put them in Jack's path, misogyny women still face today. Listen to Bad Women wherever you get your podcasts. At some point over the last week, you might have heard about this. New numbers showing inflation surging to its fastest pace in nearly 40 years, up 6.8% from a year ago. We honestly don't want to be talking about inflation again, but it's hard to avoid, especially around the holidays when we find ourselves spending a lot more. Last week, the Federal Reserve released its latest consumer price index data, which is basically a pulse check on the cost of everyday goods, and it showed the sharpest annual rise in inflation in nearly 40 years. And while that alone seems scary, what's ringing alarm bells for economists is that prices jumped across all categories of goods, while people's paychecks aren't keeping up with rising costs. Cue a ton of pressure on the government to do something about this. This week, the Fed, aka the people who manage the country's monetary policy, met and announced a series of moves to try to lower prices, including winding down economic stimulus measures left over from earlier in the pandemic and introducing three interest rate hikes over the next year to keep prices in check. Though some factors that contribute to inflation in the U.S. are actually influenced by things happening outside of the U.S., so it's still TBD whether these new policies will actually be enough to get prices down, at least in the short term. But while we wait to find out, we should also note, millennials have basically spent our entire working lives in economic turmoil, between the Great Recession and COVID. But this is the first time we've had to deal with prolonged inflation. So because it's our first time dealing with this, we called up an expert, Margarita Chang, She's a certified financial planner, and we asked her for some tips on how to keep our budgets in check. When I went to fill up the car, it cost like 31 to $33. I've never spent more than $30 on gas. There's nothing we can do about, meaning it costs more to fill up. So what do we do? Chang says we can split our spending into two buckets, core expenses, the things we have to pay, like rent, groceries, or electric bills, and variable expenses, which are basically anything outside of that. So gym memberships, getting a drink with a friend, a manicure, you know what we're talking about here. And budgeting just means making sure all those costs aren't adding up to more than what we're earning. These are still important to people, but they have control to decide how much they're going to spend on that. Meaning, if going out and getting a coffee is really important, you can still find a way to buy it for yourself. Maybe it's just getting a smaller size or cutting something else. And Chang told us, when you really look into what you pay for each month, you may notice you're still paying for a few things you don't need. I have asthma, right? 
I can run outside for hours, but it's really hard for me to run inside with mask on a treadmill. So what did I do? I actually canceled my gym membership because I just wasn't using it. I'm not telling people to cancel your gym membership, but this is an example. You can look at what it is that you're not using and then you can save that money. So that's cutting things out of your budget completely. But let's talk about saving money on the stuff you do want or need to keep spending on. First, for things like your car insurance, cell phone, credit card, or student loans, you can pick up the phone and start negotiating for better rates. It may not always work, but it's always worth a try. Second, you can comparison shop, which is exactly how it sounds, like checking if produce is cheaper at one store than another. And third, you can get creative, asking your friends and family to do secret Santas rather than buying everyone an individual present, or doing closet swaps with friends instead of buying a new dress. But if things are getting really difficult, like having to choose between paying rent or your heating bill difficult, there's still a solution. During the deepest, darkest days of the pandemic, I helped a lot of clients with this. It's what you want to do is call your provider and say, I still can pay my bill, but I, I know my bill's like $120. I can only pay 60 So I would say if you're in a difficult situation, you're having challenges, we cannot control interest rates and we cannot control inflation, but we can control how we plan. For other tips on managing your money, head on over to theskim.com. We're ending the show this week by taking a look at some potential product placement gone wrong in the Sex and the City reboot. And we'll just say this once, we're about to get into some major spoilers ahead, so feel free to skip to the credits if you still haven't watched. The revamp of the iconic show, titled And Just Like That, did something shocking in its premiere episode. And just like that, Big died. It killed off one of its popular main characters, Mr. Big. One important note here, the actor Chris Noth, who plays Mr. Big, was accused by two women of sexual assault today. We learned about that as we published this show, and we'll be keeping an eye on that story too. As for what happened to his character, the way Mr. Big died is causing a lot of controversy. In the episode, he has a heart attack after completing his 1,000th ride on his Peloton bike. And basically overnight, Peloton got a lot of unexpected bad press and also suffered some financial consequences. Mr. Big's death was so traumatic that after the show premiered, Peloton stock fell 11%. (laughs) To get a marketer's take on how bad all of this really was for Peloton, we called up Whitney Hedden. She's the CEO of 19th and Park, a creative agency in New York. We asked her, if you worked at Peloton, what would be going through your head as you watched that episode? I think I would have thought exactly everything that the Peloton marketing team thought. (laughs) Of just like, wow, this is great. Wow, what the f***? According to Peloton reps, they weren't given the heads up that their product would be used in such a morbid way. So it's safe to say that scene probably took them by surprise. But Hedden told us this wasn't all bad news for the exercise company. I'm very much of the mindset of like, all press can be good press. And I didn't feel like they did them dirty. And this is why, because I felt like they showed sincere connection with the bike. They showed that he had developed a relationship with his instructor. He got medical clearance. He had made it all the way to a thousand rides. I do think sometimes as marketers, we try to only show the good portions of things, which starts to make things feel very unrealistic. 
Still, someone at Peloton was clearly freaking out. Because just like that, they released a response ad featuring Mr. Big and his instructor. To new beginnings. To new beginnings. You look great. Well, I feel great. And a little Ryan Reynolds PSA. And just like that, the world was reminded that regular cycling stimulates and improves your heart, lungs, and circulation, reducing your risk of cardiovascular diseases. Cycling strengthens your heart muscles, lowers resting pulse, and reduces blood fat levels. He's alive. Okay, so what did Hedden think of that ad firing back? I think I would have done it a little bit differently. I do respect how they immediately responded, but I felt like it was a bit disjointed. I was really confused about it, if I'm being perfectly honest. I was like, is this big from Hedden? Is it saying that he like ran away with his Peloton instructor and now they're having Christmas together? But I'm not mad at the fact that they inserted themselves into the conversation. I think that's what good marketers do. And they capitalize off of any type of chatter Plus, a viral ad could potentially distract from some of the other recent news that's plagued the company, including sales tapering off in recent months and safety concerns around its treadmill. Still, it seems like Sex in the City didn't hit Peloton too hard. Its stock rebounded this week, and according to Hedden, If you had a hesitation about riding on a Peloton, I don't believe that Sex in the City changed your opinion. I have a Peloton. I'm definitely still going to ride my Peloton. Thanks for listening to Skim This. Today's episode was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our associate producer, Kira Long. Our senior audio engineer is Andrew Calloway, and Graylin Brashear is our head of audio. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, check out the Skim's other podcasts. 9 to 5-ish is where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. And Pop Cultured is our weekly deep dive into the culture stories you can't stop thinking about. Follow 9to5ish and Pop Cultured wherever you're already listening to us.